Welcome to the latest episode of Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm one of your co-hosts, Larry Schooler. In today's episode, you'll hear from land use attorney Michael Whalen and neighborhood leader Dr. Joyce Stotts. They'll discuss their experiences working with a specialized facilitator on a charrette designed to resolve a protracted land use dispute in Austin, Texas. At the very beginning of this process, she would never have been within a foot of me as we are sitting right now. And, uh, and she appears and, to be about two feet away now. So. And, and that's an important part of, in my opinion, um, the process, uh, relationship building, rapport building, trust building, when um, there's very little of that when you parachute in is extraordinarily hard to uh, build. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But this case, just I know we're going to get into the case in a moment, but it was filed in June of 2014. And I did not get involved until October 2015. So there had been an 18 month, uh, June, July, August, almost uh, uh, 18 16 month, 16 month period uh, that I was not involved. And um, uh, there had been a level, an escalation in terms of the conflict. So I think in terms of a, a case, it's a great study. Um, the two aspects of it that are, or three, there's many aspects. And we've actually done a little bit of a, a things we would have changed. We did, we've done a, a neighborhood meeting, a collaborative meeting to identify things that we could have done better, et cetera. But one thing that the things that stand out are, you know, you're going to go into a process that's going to have a high level of conflict. Um, 16 months passes where the conflict escalates uh, to an extraordinary degree. And then a new person comes in to try and build brand new rapport. Uh, conflict continues. And uh, we then try to, a whole new process to uh, de-escalate the conflict and try to try to work towards a resolution. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of run, ran in three or four phases, but mm-hmm. we'll get into some of that detail a little bit. Well, I've been involved in what's going on within my neighborhood for the last 10 years or so. And when this, when this, zoning case came forward, I was president of the Northwest Austin Civic Association, which is an organization that is a civic, not an HOA, not a homeowners association, but a civic association that represents some 4,000 households that are single family homes. Plus, we have about 4,800 apartment dwellers in our neighborhood. Um, So we focus mostly on the single family homeowners because most of the issues we deal with impact their their concerns. So as president, I was the one sort of leading the organization's uh, focus around this case, uh, participating in meetings with the owner's representative as we got going, um, and working toward resolutions that involved our community. Uh, One of the, the big concerns we had as the case developed to begin with was that there was limited opportunity for the neighborhood as a whole to have any say in what was going on. Um, the, the owner's representative was meeting with a number of people who were nominal leaders of those neighborhoods, but it wasn't anything of a consensus process. Um, and it was really uh, brought to the fore when we held a community meeting in August of 2014, <clears throat> where the city 
and the owner's representative gave presentations about what their plans involved. We had 311 people come into a local church to listen to this. And city staff told us they had never seen that kind of involvement, that kind of reaction. And I dare say the owner of the property and his representative had never seen such negative reaction, uh, which included things like some of the neighbors who had built little mock-ups of what the site might look like with the extremely high buildings that were being proposed, which sort of exemplified the, the angst of the neighborhood. You know, the big, the big issues we were dealing with from the beginning were big buildings towering over our homes and the traffic that that amount of development would generate. And uh, let me ask also, um, what's standard operating procedure? In other words, what do developers typically do when they're trying to bring new development into the area that you represent? Well, how does the process typically go uh, in it your experience? Really, it really varies with developers. Um, in this case, the original uh, filing of the of the Austin Oak zoning case happened without any uh, interaction with our organization. Um, we got notice of it through the, the city's process of notifying all the affected neighborhoods. Um, and that was about the first we'd heard of it. And that's in contrast to others. Uh, we have other cases where the owner or their representative asks to meet with our zoning committee and goes through a presentation of what they have in mind and asks for our feedback and asks for our opinion. And in some cases modifies what they've got before they go forward to the city. So we, we've had that kind of thing happen. We have another case that's coming back for, I think the fourth round now with the city where they have talked with both the neighbors around the property that they're, they're planning to develop. And they've talked to our committee several times uh, as they've gone through the process. So it, it varies quite a bit. Um, but they do recognize that it's better to have the neighborhood on their side than not. And that, that's an interesting, interesting point, because when um, John Ruff, the owner of this property, first got started, he says, and very plainly says now, that he understood that the chief customer of his information was the city. But after a year of struggle, decided that it was really the neighborhood he needed to deal with. And that's when he changed course and brought Michael and his team on. Um, to deal with the, the whole proposition. And let me ask Michael, you know, you, you have dealt with many cases besides Austin Oaks. You know, if, if you're being given a case from a client, a development case, and anticipate any degree of controversy around what the developer is seeking to do, what are some steps you're going to take uh, with a neighborhood group uh, from the get-go? Well, um, first, I would, I would do exactly... Uh, what Joyce described is the way they've managed some other cases. I, I always, especially in Austin, as you well know, with some very active neighborhoods, and I, and I would pause and just let everybody know, when you have single member districts, as we do and as most large cities do now, um, it, it uh, concentrates political power into neighborhoods often, especially active neighborhoods, since you've only got, for example, here about 70,000 people per district. So if you've got a well-organized um, uh, neighborhood association, especially with somebody who is a computer scientist and is very, very smart on uh, getting the message out using the Internet, which everybody basically can do now except for me, you, uh, you, you do have political power and you cannot be ignored as a stakeholder. You can't 
uh, simply bypass, uh, as I think was done in this particular case at the beginning, mm-hmm. for whatever strategic reason. I don't know the reasoning behind that. But my, uh, I tend to, uh, and this just goes back to my litigation days, I prepare the application. I send a draft of the application before it's filed to the appropriate neighborhood association, president, representatives, try to talk to them and meet with them. Um, There's also pressure in terms of deadlines and time. And so I'm not going to, uh, I've learned some hard lessons in terms of schedule and deadlines. And I think time kills all deals. In another very, very large case, the champion case that most people in Austin are familiar with, I took too much time to negotiate. Uh, It was more than a year and it went way too long. And you have to have deadlines and you have to keep pushing things forward um, or you're unable to take advantage of momentum. So if you're talking about stakeholder meetings and facilitation, I would say the three or four key things for any stakeholder process are the process is important. Don't hide information. Give everything you've got that you're sending to the city to the neighborhood at the same time. There's no reason to play a gotcha game. There was another very large case that was going on at the same time where they wouldn't give the traffic information to the neighborhood and it just completely escalated emotion and made the conflict worse. So process is important. I think active listening slash silence is important. I tell young lawyers here that silence is your best negotiating partner because when you're talking, you're not listening. Uh, and uh, and I think third is you've got to create self-imposed artificial deadlines. It's the only way to keep the momentum going. And in the case of lawsuits settle when there's trial dates and uh, land use cases and other policy cases settle when there's a council date, in my opinion, or a hearing date. Yep. So, and I guess we've got to pause also to recognize the number of stakeholders involved uh, grew quite a bit. So a couple of other lessons that I would add, this would be number four, is the same hundred people show up to everything at City Hall, no matter where you live, whether it's New York City or Albuquerque or Austin or wherever, it's the same hundred to 200 people that show up. The exception being when there's a contested issue, because as we know, Having an enemy organizes, right? Hate organizes and having an enemy organizes. It's an organizing theory. And in this case, a lot more people ended up showing up uh, to get involved. Uh, and the same hundred people that are typically at City Hall also wanted to mm-hmm. uh, pile on, yeah. despite the fact that they weren't involved in the neighborhood. So that'd be lesson number four is be aware of the same hundred people in your City Hall. Uh, In terms of parachuting in, the biggest challenge, given the level of escalation, is always how do you manage that first interaction, knowing that nobody trusts you from day one? Do you start saying no? I'll give you an example. We we asked Joyce and others to organize a meeting where two members of every single neighborhood association that wanted would appear. And one organization that had just been newly formed solely around the organizing principle of opposing this hut, no other organizing principle, uh, brought like five members. Well, what am I, you know, am I going to walk in and say, hey, three people leave? I mean, that's just a <laughs> stupid process. 
thing. It has nothing to do with the underlying merits and it, it, it makes them feel more powerful and stronger and does not have any impact on the ultimate outcome then let go. It sleeves off the vest. You have to remember as a facilitator, as somebody who's working on policy, don't get caught up in the rules of engagement and to, and to do a little bit of extemporaneous uh, uh, activity. Walk into a room, don't get wigged out by the fact that the rules weren't followed. And then one thing that I did is everybody started asking me, well, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? All these promises have been made for 16 months by the prior lawyer and team and uh, in a dramatic, somewhat dramatic uh, uh, move, I ripped a piece of paper out of my notepad that was blank and put it in the middle of the, of the table. I said, this is exactly where we're starting right now. Nothing's on the table. We have no expectation in terms of what our buildings are going to look like. And we are giving you, we aren't giving you tens of millions of dollars to the community benefits. We are starting all over. And I don't know what the impact was or if everybody just thought it was a, I just came up with that extemporaneously. Mm -hmm. And I think my client was a little shocked as well, <laughs> but there was no other way at that moment in time, there was no other way to begin a discussion. If, people thought there was a hidden agenda. And just doing that didn't, in and, in and of itself, uh, convince everybody that I was a trustworthy person. It took, it took uh, weeks and weeks of demonstrated action. Words are, words are words. Action matters. And people respect when you give them everything that you've got. You're sending them stuff that you're filing. You're sending them the responses that you're filing to zoning. Um, you just got to, I think when you're, the more transparent you are, the less angst people have about 14 story and 15 story buildings. Uh, if you can be as transparent as possible, obviously there's attorney client privilege and strategy that might not be, but anything you're giving to a staff member or to a city council member, you need to be prepared that that is uh, subject to an open records request, a public information request, and therefore you should be prepared and should actively take, be proactive and build some trust and give it to uh, everybody that's involved, all the stakeholders that are involved. Well, you know, again, I think um, another lesson learned here is information. I'm interested to hear where you were stunned, but uh, on lack of okay. information, but uh, we'll talk about that. But Joyce had been the only person I was negotiating with. That would have been fine. She wasn't, and she had basically a locker room. So you've got to remember the other key to a negotiation with multiple parties is the locker room effect. No matter what you all discuss, if you're if you've got each team has just one ambassador, and then all of a sudden she or he has to take it back to the locker room, they they just start beating their chest, and it's done. Like then they just beat up on the on the negotiator, which is exactly what happened to Joyce, as I mentioned earlier, the civil war that she was dealing with. So trying to identify who the ambassadors are going to be, trying to identify ways to protect them, to minimize the locker room effect um, that they're going to have to manage later on uh, can, to some extent, be minimized if you arm the provide, arm's the wrong word, but if you provide the stakeholders with enough information that they can mute to some extent, or at least uh, 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 pacify to some extent the people that are in the locker room and that are beating up on her for 
her failure to take a stronger stance, if you will. Well, when we have as much disagreement among the participants as we had here, I think something like the charrette process we followed would be a very good model to use. So one of our one of the people on our zoning committee had been involved with charrettes before and had suggested that as something we should do. So after a discussion with our Nawaka board, we put together a resolution asking uh, council to stop the proceedings on this case and sponsor with, with the owner uh, a charrette to be able to get the community involvement. And the, the benefit of that was that we were able to do um, a lot of information dispersal before the charrette happened. So we had a couple of neighborhood meetings where we gave a lot of information about the case and the process. And then we held two workshops where the neighborhood came up with the objectives they wanted to see considered as we went through the planning process of the charrette. Um, we had a, a batch of 29 objectives that we, we sort of uh, wordsmithed over time to be the things that guided the charrette design process. And the, the head of the design team said to me later that that was a really valuable tool for them to have <clears throat> throughout the, the charrette week to use to sanity check their plans. Um, now, as it turned out, that, that set of objectives had internally conflicting objectives because there were things that the neighborhood wanted to see that were at odds with other things the neighborhood wanted to see. Um, and so we couldn't achieve everything, and we knew that from the beginning. At least most of us knew that from the beginning. Um, and after the, after the planning process and the, and the set of objective setting, we had a committee that put together the, the week-long charrette design workshop, which consisted of a day of information sessions and then several days of design and refinement until we got to the final design. Um, and we should talk I about how the, the facilitator was selected. At that first right. meeting, when I threw my piece of paper <clears throat> with dramatic flourish in the middle, people said, well, who do you want to facilitate since the prior lawyer had said publicly we'll pay for a charrette? Um, and I do want to talk about dis dispute resolution processes, put that in the parking lot later. But um, And I said to the neighborhood, because as a facilitator myself, I knew that the last thing I wanted to do was select the facilitator mm -hmm. and then be accused of selecting the, the facilitator that that I cared about when I knew that as with all dispute resolution processes, the stakeholders control the outcome, not the facilitator. And I was I, I had a bit of an advantage. I knew that um, rationally and emotionally, whereas I didn't think and it turned out it was correct. The stakeholders at that first meeting didn't recognize that. Mm -hmm. And it was so empowering to say to the neighborhood groups that were gathered in that first meeting, I'm not selecting the person. That is the last thing I'm going to do. What I suggest we do is have you as a group provide two or three uh, candidates and that we gather again and select one through consensus at our subsequent meeting after you've identified who the candidates are. And, and with respect to the design team, too, we had some say in who was going to be doing the design during, during the session. Um, and we had a committee of people formed from that initial meeting that Michael described, where we had representatives from each of the different neighborhood interests uh, who were there. So we had about a 20-person committee now putting together the, the charrette. And people were collaborating on doing the um, advertising of it. Uh, making sure that there were people who were handling each of those meetings and uh, inviting people to participate in them, 
helping at roundtable discussions and that sort of thing. So it was a fairly fairly collaborative process. Um, and then when when we talked about how the the week of the charrette was going to happen, this committee was sitting together with John Ruff, the owner, and with Michael and with um, several representatives from our city council offices. Um, I think one of the good things we had going for us throughout this process too was that uh, there were two city council members who were pretty key in what was going on with this, this case. And they had their aides involved with the charrette process throughout the whole planning effort and throughout the charrette week, uh, which gave us credibility with those council members and the ability to really talk with them about what we wanted to see done with the case. Um, but the, the place where we fell down in the process, I think, is in planning the week, we did not have agreement on how decisions were going to be made about what is the final plan. There were people on the team organizing this who asked our facilitator, Mr. Farr, how does this decision get made? And he essentially said, it's a consensus decision. So many of the people in the planning group assumed that the result would emerge from consensus out of that week of meetings. There were some people on the team who really wanted to see a vote happen at the charrette. And that became um, a problem for us as the charrette week went on. And I would have to say the, the most negative um, argument that was made after the charrette was complete was that that vote was not valid, uh, that it hadn't been done with adequate planning and forethought um, and in my opinion, it was something that was kind of a, um, a mistake on the part of our facilitator to agree to the vote after having talked with us about how this was going to be a consensus decision. So the, the charrette proceeded with a Tuesday design, design day, a Wednesday design day, a Thursday decision day, a Friday presentation kind of day. And Tuesday evening, several people approached our facilitator and asked that there be a vote. And he agreed to that. And then, and then he tried to conduct the vote on Wednesday night, but we had to suspend our meeting before that vote could happen. And so the vote happened on Thursday night, unbeknownst to a lot of people that that wasn't part of the plan, but it was done on a Thursday night. So I would pause, and this is a great example of where the process, not the content, turned out to be a rallying cry for the no putters. The P right. put is a plan unit development, which is was the organ no pud was the organizing principle yeah. and it's uh curious to me i didn't know who it was that had suggested it mm -hmm. because it was a surprise to me as well that it was the no putters who are a who are trying to sabotage really almost at every single evening right. the process because the process involved putting up iterations of a plan and then putting post-its on what you like or don't like and they, to some extent, packed the <clears throat> meeting and then their the comments by putting multiple ones, each individual, that were uh, uh, unhelpful and negative about each design um, yeah. as a way to, for, to, to stall it. So as you're looking at multiple party facilitation, you've got, on, you've got to also see who's there in good faith with bona fides, who really wants to <clears throat> open their mind and heart to uh accommodation and you absolutely have to be prepared for sabotage it's it's in it's in every single mediation every single dispute resolution process has the potential for sabotage because 
it can't be the case that everybody is there acting in good faith with an open mind. And I, I would agree that one uh, thing that we could have done better is if that is going to be the case, how do we inoculate for <clears throat> bad faith participation, which is inevitable? And Doug Farr, I thought, did a good job, the facilitator recognizing that because he's done it nationally, that there will be bad faith participation. I just think this process piece yeah. became challenging. We also, I think, had some different understanding among participants in the, the organizing committee about the, the role of what was called a code compliant plan. Um, <clears throat> there was an expectation on the part of the no PUD side that it was really possible to do a plan as an outcome of a charrette that was just compliant with the current code and didn't lead to a planned unit development, which I think for the most part, the rest of the world would agree made no sense. You were paying for a charrette to create a design. Why would you honor something that was not developed in that charrette? So <clears throat> in my opinion, what we, what we lacked here was a sufficient set of information about how the process was going to run and the expectations that could be really expectations of the charrette um, and not make promises up front that says, yes, a co-compliant plan might actually be a valid plan. Um, those two things um, gave a lot of credibility to the, to the no put argument after the charrette was complete. And, but I just wanted to add one other thing. I'm not, uh, I am not so sure I'm a, as big of a fan of the charrette process as Joyce's. It's extraordinarily expensive. And if you're in this class and you think every dispute resolution oh, process no. is equal. It, it, this was more than a quarter of a million dollars paid for by the owner, for the wow. facilitator, the design team. Um, so the neighborhood selected the facilitator. They selected the design team. You wanted a traffic engineer to mm -hmm. help consult with. So we mm -hmm. paid for a traffic engineer mm -hmm. that they selected. Um, they then selected a civil engineer to help with drainage and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. They selected, we paid for. I mean, it added up and was extraordinarily expensive. It, it, it's a big project. It's not a small project. It's more than half a million dollars. And nevertheless, uh, I, I think that uh, people should be mindful of the cost. And there's a way if you get the right people involved initially before you file a case like this. Now, I, I, I would agree. This is not a process you would use every time. But. I think you'll have to agree that what you got out of it, too, was a much more involved neighborhood, yeah. appreciative of what's coming there. Yeah. And and it really did get people to think about pros and cons about what goes into that site and understand. I don't think half the neighborhood understood and probably still doesn't understand that development of that site is going to generate that traffic flow no matter what. And so the fact that we're trying to to minimize it and make traffic improvements to help it go along. I think is something that became understood by a lot of the community through the charrette. There's no other way that would have happened. I think communicating so that so that's a interest. Okay, I'll I'll give I'll give Joyce that. And <laughs> um, it, it takes a really large project to justify that sort yes. of expense and extraordinary and of the community it's extraordinary volunteer commitment. I mean, we have, you have no idea uh, the hundreds of hours that Joyce alone spent and the committee. A truly extraordinary um, amount of time that was spent informing the community, uh, and that would be another kind of lesson learned. If you are providing information, if you're straight up, you can create ambassadors in the community 
to uh, provide that information. Joyce, trust me, was never an advocate for uh, 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 me or John or the or the the redevelopment. She would have been happy if it had stayed as is. Mm -hmm. I think she and uh, many people on the team recognized something was going to happen. Right. We can either control the outcome or we can just let it uh, or we can fight uh, the outcome. And, and they ended up controlling the outcome and getting, I personally think, um, good community benefits. Which, and the one thing that Joyce said, which is important and a lot of owners don't recognize, and if you are going to be an advocate rather than a third party facilitator, I think it's important to remind your clients throughout your life that you don't necessarily want to build something that people are going to drive by and flip off, you know, shoot the bird at, right? That you want them to drive by and say, hey, I helped design that. In my opinion, it was not the best possible outcome. And that's because what I consider to be a sabotage by this council member in the final um, negotiations for what the council would approve. Uh, because in that final negotiation, we lost a piece of the solution we developed at the Charette, which was to have a hotel. boutique hotel within this within this development. Something that the neighbors decided after the Charette was really a darn good idea because we didn't have a place for people's grandparents to come and stay or folks visiting for holidays or whatever. Um, so we lost that. And in the shuffle, we got more office space, more traffic. Uh, a couple of buildings that are a floor taller than they were after the charrette. Um, so we we lost that, and I think people in the neighborhood still are feeling unhappy about that. But but in general, we got a really good development out of it with a park space that we desperately need, uh, some additional retail and restaurants that are going to be helpful to us, and and an office space that's going to be very attractive for those who are working there. Well, I certainly think when there are parties who have strong disagreements about the plan that's proposed, um, that's that's a time when you could bring the group together in a, a working session like a charrette. Um, but I think, as Michael pointed out, it needs to be a development that has an awful lot of value to it. You wouldn't do this for something that's a, a small change. Uh, because there is a lot of investment both on the part of the of the owner and on the part community. of the neighborhoods. I mean, the community put in many, many hours here, um, and that it needs to be something that's worth doing that. Um, but with whenever there is such a disagreement, I think it makes good sense. I came into this also with some background from my, my IT world, where we do something called a joint application design, a JAD session, uh, when there are parties within an organization working on a solution to a systems problem where they can't agree on a solution. And you can bring representatives of those different departments or whoever the parties are um, together in a working session where they've done some homework about the key issues that are being resolved. But they gather in a session where they come to consensus on approaches to the solutions to those problems. And so I had a, a, a mental model of how this should work and, and it's, it's valuable when you've got people with valid concerns on uh, a solution uh, where they have different needs, different understanding, uh, different backgrounds. So being able to get them to meet together and talk about it together is important. Just getting one-on-ones isn't going to resolve it for the whole group. And so this is, a, I think, an important uh, 
approach that you can take for a contentious situation. That was Dr. Joyce Stotts and Michael Whalen discussing their resolution to a land use dispute in Austin, Texas. We'll have more episodes like this coming up where we talk with parties on different sides of a dispute about how they managed to resolve it. Thanks for listening.